0: Hey there everybody. Here's something fresh and new. Introducing Frank Einstein, a CGI graphic novel slash comic book by Lorenzo West of West Comics. Sword, Sorcery, and Sci-Fi Tech during the Roman Empire. What more can you want, Scott? I don't know. I don't know maybe, either. Maybe throwing a dragon in there. I guess maybe that's covered in the sorcery part. But we'll see. Probably, Probably. dragons, definitely sci-fi tech, and the Roman Empire. This story is available on Substack.com. That's Frank Einstein from West Comics on Substack.com. Enjoy the continuing weekly postings, now including Robot Romance, a sci-fi series. Very exciting stuff. And while we're here,
1: let's also uh, share a little bit about our friends and corporate overlords over at Fangoria.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world, and it's been over 40 years And they are better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, up to and including the ones that Eric and I write for them, Mm. by the way. So the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription.
0: Now on with the show.
2: Hi. My name is Stephen King.
0: He's gonna break! Bad ram. Bad go See a dead
1: body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Hosts. There's two of us. I don't know why I just said it like that. <laughs> Our guest presence on the show today brings our quest to get him on the air to what is sure to be a triumphant conclusion. You'll know him from such films as Risky Business, the Beverly Hills Cop franchise, True Romance, early 90s HBO mainstay, Second Sight, the immortal Perfect Strangers, and last but certainly not least, the 1995 miniseries adaptation of Stephen King's The Langoliers. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Bronson Pinchot. Bronson, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great.
1: And yourselves? Oh, well, we're having no tech problems for starters. <laughs> zero zero so, at all. Yeah, so so it's it's been a very easygoing day so far.
0: You're going know, to pull the curtain back a little bit here. We, we were supposed to record about 40 minutes ago, but we've been running through a whole bunch of tech stuff on my end. It, it's all, all all my fault. My old ass computer is... is uh, Fuck things up, but Bronson has been nothing but uh, a champ and sticking with us as we're we're figuring all this out. It is Most all gracious. good, all Bro- good, my friends.
1: Um, Bronson, first I want to I want to start off by thanking you for for uh, playing a role in the, the the screening of Timekeepers of Eternity that we recently did at Fantastic Fest. Um, I'm still hearing from people about that that screening. They were so delighted to see you there, and uh, I think that made the whole thing just super memorable we hope you had a good time you seem to have a good time
2: i did and uh i look forward i told the director that um as as anyone knows who saw it i i don't watch myself so i've never seen it but because i i realized after thinking about it uh because he's because he has so re rethought it and re just made something new out of it it's it's mm-hmm. uh, I will watch it, and I told him that I would happily watch it with him. And for two seconds we were toying with the idea of my joining the Thessaloniki Greece um, film festival screening of it at, at which at, in which case I would have screened it myself. but it looks it looks super, super interesting. And in many ways, it's like it improved the original because I think the original was a little. I, 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 a little bland, a little washed out, and so to make it black and white, it's like okay, mm-hmm. cool. So now, now it's new. It's, it's very good, it's very cool.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really interesting for the listeners who might not know what it is. Uh, a Greek filmmaker like <laughs> printed out the entirety of the mini series, like frame by frame, and then r- like r- edited it and re. Designed it and like did weird, crazy, cool, like almost animation Don Hertzfeld style uh, effects with the paper, uh, it, mm-hmm. and, uh, and essentially, tactile. yeah, it is. It is a fascinating uh, movie that you would think that wouldn't be as interesting as it is. You know, it's one of those things where the first time I heard about it, I was just like, like somebody took the Langoliers and just like <laughs> made an animated project out but of it. He, weird but paper. that's
2: exactly what he didn't do. He took the character of Toomey and made. A toomey movie totally. where, where, as i understand it after when toomey dies that 's the end of the story yeah. and uh tells it through toomey 's eyes, which, as I explained on the on the podcast uh was the the challenge and the and ultimately the the problem with the original was that I was taking all my uh, acting directions directly from the text of the novel, mm-hmm. which said that he had flecks of foam on his mouth and he had no sanity. And then when they made a TV movie out of it, they toned everything down so far <laughs> that it looked like, I mean, as, as one reviewer said, it looked like Bronson Pinchot was insane instead of the character. And I, I felt poorly served by that. I, I must say, I, I did. Anybody watching the dailies could have said to me, OK, so we have to decide which movie we're going to make and you have to pull it way back or we have to lurch way forward or something. But n- nobody did that. So he's, he's rectified it. I, I, I think don't know, but I does. gotta say, man,
1: like your, your performance in the Langoliers miniseries is the best thing about it. Like I wouldn't, I don't, I, I don't know that I would want to see the subdued version of Craig Toomey that, that might've come out of that process. If you'd
2: not, I don't been. think there is a subdued version. I, I guess what I'm saying, <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying in a very diplomatic way is that we should have either, I don't know. I, you know, I did a, I did a Shakespeare show once called a winter's tale or Mm -hmm. is it The Winter's Tale? And I played a a trickster in it who pulls the wool over the eyes of everybody. And the director said on day one, okay, so he, this character traditionally pulls the wool over the eyes of all the peasants, but I want to show that peasants can be smart too. So I'm going to have them all be on to you. And I said, okay, it's day one. You still have time to recast. I can't do that. (laughs) I can't do that. I can't do that because if they're not on to me and I'm not putting it over on them, there is no I don't there's no character. That's what he lives for. It's also what I live for in life. God bless you, but I can't play that for you. So I I will bow out. And then he said, No, no, no. We'll have the we'll have the peasants be fooled. Because it just literally like saying, um, I'm gonna do a production of Hamlet, but Hamlet's father doesn't die and his mother doesn't <laughs> Have sex with his uncle, and he's not bothered by anything. Okay, action. And I know there's certain things that just there's no fabric anymore. There's no, you know, with every storytelling work of art, there's the weft and the the weave and the whatever the woof, the whatever it's called. They've got to be pulling in two directions, or you don't have a fabric. So, um, as I've gotten older, if somebody says I'm going to let all these threads go, I say, good. I'll. Can I go too? because unless you're pulling in the other direction there's no there's right. not we can't tell a story.
1: Well, if it makes you feel any better, you know, before you actually sit and watch time keeps of eternity. I think if 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 the problem is seeing yourself on screen and being distracted by your own
2: performance, what he's done to that what he's done to that No, the film... problem is me judging my performance and 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 but I the it's me just judging and second guessing and I wish I had done this better, but because in a sense, he has made the 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 paper ripping and the and the reframing and the and everything. His that is a performance. It's a, it's basically it is. It's a graphic, it's a sure. graphic art performance. That I can sit back and say, okay, he took my performance as if it was paint or clay, and he created something new with it. So I'm game, right? I'm game. I'm totally game. You know, uh, the original. Oh, I had to watch. Little bits of it to to provide uh, post production sound, and it was excruciating. But what, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right. What are you going to do?
0: But you know, I think that you know the way that Timekeepers is framed is is it's it really is a descent into madness because it is focusing on Toomey's fall into madness, and you know that that's a character who is you know, on the precipice when we meet him and it doesn't oh, take hell much, yeah. of a, much of a push. Uh, and I think you're exactly right. Like having that be the focus of the story, suddenly you don't have that sticking out like a sore thumb, you know, yeah. feeling that you had on, you know, with the, the original product.
2: Yeah. You don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. You want, you want a you know, you want a world. You want a world that you can immerse yourself in. I mean, I always think of The Wizard of Oz Everybody is staying in their lane, which is what makes it possible for Bert Lars, the Cowardly Lion, to go to crazy vaudeville land. Mm-hmm. Nobody else is trying to, like, go there. That's his lane. And it's just like, wow, how did he do that? Well, he did it because everyone was was a really uh, disciplined storyteller and was like, okay, that's, that's what makes the Cowardly Lion a lunatic. But we're all going to... St- stay essentially realistic even if we've got 10 pounds of latex on our faces and that's the genius of it right and the most naturalistic performance the two most naturalistic performances in there are dorothy and the witch the witch is obviously a straight-up psychopath but she's real Mm -hmm. i mean yes she's got a green face and a big nose and a putty chin but she is real she's got issues and it's terrifying
0: Absolutely, and She fails. That, that's something that I love that people don't really talk about when it comes to Wizard of Oz. I know this isn't the Wizard of Oz cast, but still, I want to <laughs> dive into this because she when she screws up in the movie or her plans don't, you know, don't succeed the, the poppy field or whatever. And she goes, you know, she just gets pissed off at herself. Yeah. And the more pissed off she gets, the scarier she gets, at least as a oh, kid, yeah. because she becomes more and more unhinged and more desperate to to get those slippers and, and go to any lengths to do it. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really remarkable performance. Well, it's Margaret Hamilton,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. The thing of it is, I don't think it's ever, I don't think it's ever too far out of, uh, I mean, it's the seminal work of American and maybe even world, uh, you know, fantasy science fiction, because as I always say, you know, they just really did it with a handful of latex and a camera. I mean, there's no, the special effects are something I could do right now with you and a Super 8 camera, um, but it's all performance based, and it's 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 always something everybody should screen before they make everything. It's great to have special effects, but they did it with matte paintings mm-hmm. and a handful of putty, and it's still harrowing and amazing. And uh, you know, well, I, I was telling the story when 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 you screened the Timekeepers of. Uh, day one of shooting and I, you know, you like to ease into your character, ease into your character. But the director, um, laid me on the hot asphalt and said, we're going to do your death scene. And so let's pour blood on him. And now Bronson, look at my hand. That's your eyeline. Chomp, chomp, chomp. You're being eaten action. And, you know, (laughs) that and it was because I should have told the story It is because the plane set had not shown up. It was an actual plane and they were towing it to Bangor, Maine, and it was late. So he said, either we don't shoot anything and we lose a bunch of money or you get on the burning hot asphalt covered with caro syrup made to look like blood. And I go chomp, chomp, chomp. And you scream. Okay, Bronnie, Bronnie. So, (laughs) you know, that's. Yeah, that's the way it is. I mean, that's the way it is so with all storytelling. And it becomes super important with fantasy science fiction because the only way it's going to really curdle your blood is if it's grounded so that the, the people watching it can get carried away on the magic carpet, as I call it. If it doesn't seem grounded, then it's it's camp. You know, it's burlesque right but if it's grounded it'll it'll get you i remember experiencing a
1: little bit of whiplash watching the miniseries when it aired because i had grown up watching you on perfect strangers uh yeah is it all right if i ask you a couple questions about perfect
2: strangers yes i of talking about this okay no i don't get tired you know i don't get tired of of anything really it's it's funny i mean I, I, I think it's amazing to have got have gotten the opportunity and to do it. And no, I don't. Go ahead.
1: Okay. Well, I would like to say I've seen every episode of Perfect Strangers, because I remember that being like appointment viewing in my household growing up. Yeah, that on.
2: makes one of us. But go ahead.
1: But then some years later, someone sent me a clip that I had never seen before from the show in which you appear in what appears to be a dream sequence. Oh, There's yes. A character named Fresh Young Balky B. The clip itself is completely free of context and i oh, can't figure it's not out
2: a, it's not a dream sequence what from what i can remember can we say naughty words on this on this oh, yeah. podcast? oh yes okay because then i can tell the story i've never told before not ever
0: oh mm. my god not, this is exciting. not
2: ever um as i remember and this is a very time-worn uh conceit uh in sitcom somebody I think sees Balky just dancing by himself and says, Oh, you're good. We'll put you in a video. But I think, I think he was in, I don't, I don't think it was a dream sequence. I could be wrong, but he does a little, you know, dance thing and, and, and a semi rap, whatever that was. But here's the fun part. Okay. So whether it was a dream sequence or not, I can't tell you, but we're doing this, you know, actual dance with backup dancers. And of course I wanted it to be good, uh, as good as I could make it, so they bring on this absolutely central casting dance director, whose name I don't remember, but he was the kind of dance director that maybe only Marty Short in his prime could have played. <laughs> and what he said, which and I, you got to understand, this is in this era. They wouldn't even like, you know, they would come before every take and make sure my shirt was buttoned up so that none of the hair on my chest showed. I mean, it was super, super clean. So right before the final take, I mean, the the, the shooting of it, this totally, you know, delightful and committed man. But he was so god. So he takes me and these backup dancers onto a separate sound stage, And at the top of his lungs, he says, let me see it with fire fuck me in the butt energy. And I, I, and I just had to freaking la- like that, you know, 20 feet away. There's, uh, there's the most innocent uh, eight o'clock family show in the world. And there's this guy, that's his, that's his, that's what he wants. And, you know, it's, I just love stuff like that. I love, 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 love stuff like that. There was a moment like that on the Langoliers, uh, the director had a a wonderful foghorn voice that I love to imitate. And um, there was some take where I was writhing around on the floor being crazy, tied up with ropes to talk about the Langoliers. And uh, we had a British first assistant director and the director had this foghorn voice. So I was writhing around and I did it. I think tears were leaking out of my eyes. And at the end of the speech, he said, cut printed i love it brawny you act the hell out of it keep it moving on and then you hear this little voice say tom we weren't rolling <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just, just...
1: <laughs> are you and uh Marklin baker still in touch you oh very stop. much so
2: very much yeah so. you just can't get that close and not stay close if i don't see him we talk in text, but if I don't see him for, you know, a year and a half, we get in a room and we start in the middle of a sentence. There's just no, uh, it's, he's right. He's in a, in, in many ways that would not offend my family. He's closer than family. We're just, we have some weird wavelength that we've always been on. And we could, I would say this with a, a hint of irony, but we, we do read each other's minds he can start to move toward me to say something, especially something creative. And I already know what he's going to say. And I'm hundred percent right. And vice versa. If I get an idea, if I go, Oh, he's already got his, he already has the whole idea clear in his head. And I'm not kidding. And it's absolutely the director of the show who we love very much. We would look at a moment and say, Oh, and then we'd just, go our separate ways go to our opposite entrances to to enact it and he would say can i please be part of this we were like we'll (laughs) we'll, we'll just we'll just show you i mean that was the way it was we were we read each other's minds and it was weird that's a perfect
1: pairing then it's cool to hear that you know you hear so many stories about people like just maybe
2: not getting along oh know. i don't i mean it's i don't understand that because your allies you know you're in the trenches you know, there's nothing more vulnerable than, than acting. So if you do it side by side, you can support each other in wonderful ways. You know, wonderful. I remember Christian Slater in uh, True Romance. There we are locked in that elevator. And he said to me, uh, he has the gun to my head, and he said, how hard do you want me to push it? And I said, push it as hard as you can and don't let up and don't break character. And he goes, Cool. And then I don't know how many things he did, <laughs> but he wanted to be a responsible actor. But he also loved hearing, like, "Let's just get there and not back off." Just fantastic, yeah. absolutely fantastic. True Romance. It,
1: I my impression of that is that it wasn't, um, it didn't blow up at the time, but is now no. like you know a a very very beloved movie.
2: Yeah, it definitely um, did not blow up at the time. Neither did the Wizard of Oz come uh, mm-hmm. at, at all. It didn't recoup money. Until the second reissue, because it was so expensive, but um, and also because a lot of kids were in the audience and they paid half price. But no, I mean, there's uh, you know, and there's stuff that goes the other way. There's stuff that absolutely slaughtered at the at the uh, box office, and you never see it now because it just doesn't age well. But he was a real actor's director. He would get into it with you in a way that I think was probably. more typical of a silent film director. He would get right into the moment with you. He'd hyperventilate. Uh, There was a scene where I threw, I was throwing up. I was dry heaving. He was dry heaving. He just, (laughs) that's how, and he stood right next to the lens. None of this, um, for people that have not made a film, what happens usually is you're on camera and then the director and everybody else are huddled many yards away in a covered area called Video Village where they're watching, the film uh, on a, on a monitor pretty much the way Mm -hmm. it's going to look finished, whether they're they're way far away. So if the director wants to give you a direction, he has to either shout it or tell someone who tells someone else who tells someone else or travel (laughs) or travel to the set. Okay. But, uh, but Tony never did that. He was right next to the lens, right with you every second in a way that is actually giving me a lump in my throat, even to think of, because that's, that's the way it ought to be done in my opinion. Sure. Um but uh, he's the only person Well, Arthur Penn did it too on stage, which was weird. He would get right in your face and act the character with you, but it's very cool. It's super yeah. cool. A lot of people don't like it, but I love it because they're showing you they're not showing you the performance that they want you to give. They're showing you the soul, which is different. They're showing you like they're ripping off the 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 the, the front of the car. And the and all the on all the covers and they're showing you how the engine works, and they're asking you to drive, but they're showing you the combustion, and it's a super exciting way to direct. It's so exciting! It's got to give you energy as an actor too, it does. to yeah.
0: something to feed off of. Right? <clears throat> and, and you just don't.
2: And and it and it's it you know it's like well if you're going to go there I'll go there. It's just absolutely sensational. It's just it's it's the, it's the most exciting, because we are their paint. You know they're. Mm. They have the paintbrush and they dip it in you and then they paint their painting, which is the movie. And if they don't, if they get that involved, they're going to get something sensational. They're going to get something raw and real. And, you know, it's amazing. You ever read the uh, the original script, like the like
1: T- Tarantino's draft? Yeah. yeah. What do you what did you make of that? Like I the, couldn't understand the, one word of it. It's <laughs> and it's pretty fucking I don't know. I It's been a while since I read it, but I remember it being kind of confusing what what he you see did. the it, thing
2: is with very good screenwriting I, i'm gonna say this is a hard and fast rule if you can understand it if it's linear and understandable and you can see what's coming it's going to be b plus if you can only get through it by by lodging yourself in in a micro moment and then seeing what the next micro moment is it's going to be really good now mm. when amy heckerling wrote clueless she and I were boyfriend and girlfriend and she gave me the script to read and she said what do you think and I said I can't understand one word of it because it was all in the high school you know inside patois I said I can't understand I can't understand what's going on I can't follow it then I saw the first screening and I was like this is the best thing you've ever done but I could not make head or tails of true romance but I I knew it was gonna have to be for lack of a better phrase, was going to have to be pain based. Like I was going to have to reach into my own personal angst to do it, which excited me. And I didn't find out till I was on the set and everything was in place what each moment was about, and that was exciting. And i i still I still think that's the standard. Like if I can't, if I look at something and they say we really want you, and I can't quite make out what's going on, I say, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> because right. why should you like i don't sight read music but if someone hands me beethoven's fifth on paper i look at it and i go this has got to be good because i've heard the symphony and but these are just blobs of ink right this isn't, this isn't music these are just signifiers so um yeah i'll go to, i'll go hear that you know what i mean uh beethoven wrote it so i i don't i can't i can't tell what this is but yeah i'll go see that go over here i'll go hear that do you got anything on true romance eric
0: well, I, I wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about Tony Scott uh, just because I really have heard nothing bad about that guy. The only thing, the, the closest bad thing I've heard about him, uh, and oddly enough, I'm going to drop a, a name here, but I was on the set of War of the Worlds and I was talking to, uh, uh, you know, the director of War of the Worlds. And, uh, you know, you might have heard of him and and he was introducing me to some of the, the cast people and it was like cool tom cruise oh my god great to meet you and then it's like oh t- little dakota fanning good to meet you and then like for some reason cigars came up i think because it was the last day of photography and and uh and janos kaminsky and um uh at spielberg were smoking stogies to celebrate and uh and uh, i think somebody made mentions like oh or you know does the smell bother you you know because she was Within the vicinity of the cigar smoke or whatever, and she was just like, "Oh no!" I was like I've worked with, I've worked with Tony Scott, and she's she like, "Like he's like, ooh, that guy, he just always she was so stinky, you know." And so that's the worst thing I've ever heard about Tony Scott was that he smelled like cigars. Um, but uh, but I've just been fascinated by him as a storyteller and as a filmmaker and just how you know he evolved going back to with the Hunger, right? That was one of his his first movies. But yeah, no,
2: I'd love to hear more about Tony Scott. No, he was just a gift. He was a gift to storytelling and he did it with the kind of passion that y- you just almost never see so that you would do anything for him. And that's, mm-hmm. and he you would do quickly, you learned, I'll do anything for him because he's he doesn't care how messy and dirty he gets. And if he's going to do it, then I'm going to do it and we're both doing it and I mean, it's so rare. I, you can't fake that. You can't imitate that. It, it just his his passion for for storytelling was like a virtuoso on a piano or a violin. Yeah. I mean, he just disappeared into it. No, he's just amazing. As a matter of fact, I I can't go on a a, a a roller coaster. I cannot do it. Hmm. So we go to Magic Mountain to do the <laughs> scene where uh, Christian and I are on the roller coaster, and I said, I can't, I can't do it. And he said, Will you do it just once? For me, and I said for you, yes. So we went on it, and as you know, if you've seen the movie, I'm starting to dry heave and cry, and then um, I started to get out. and He said, "I, I need a close up of you, and that means everybody has to get out except I'll strap the camera in." I said, hmm. "You you you don't you you said I just had to do it once." And he said, "Well, would you just do it one more time for me?" And I said, "All alone." like with not even any other human being in it and a camera strapped next to me. And he said, for me. So I did it. And <laughs> by, by, the t- by the time it was over, I was genuinely throwing up and crying and he came up and put his hand on my shoulder and said, one more time, Bronnie, for me. And I, I, <laughs> I, I did it. I did it six times. I never have done it before. I've never done it after, but I did it for him. Now, I will tell you that when the movie was done, they have all these takes from all the trips I made uh, and they had, in in order to make it seamless because of the noise of the, you know, the machine and the track and everything, they had to basically put quite a bit of, of the, of the of the sounds coming out of me together at the end all together so i was uh i was supposed to get on a plane to somewhere in europe and the sound editor said to me in the in the uh sound studio they had this movie on the screen and she said so we have like 63 cues bronson uh so the first one is you dry heaving i said yeah uh what is the second one and she said uh let me see here whimpering but just a little. <laughs> and the third one. Well, let's just do them one by one. I said, What is the third one? Uh, sounds like you're kind of almost maybe gonna throw up. I said, All right, here's my idea. Tell me if you like it. How long is the whole sequence? Three and a half minutes. I said, Supposing I cry, whimper, and dry heave for five minutes, and in that five minutes, you will find every little piece you need. And she said, Oh my gosh. That is a good idea. Do you want to try it? So I said, "Yeah." Now I've got to tell you, I'm sitting in an easy chair right now, and I'm starting to be nauseous from the just the the, the, you know the emotional memory. But they 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 run you know they run tape, and I put the thing on, and I didn't even look at the screen. I just started to go, (sighs) and I did it. So at the end of the five minutes, there's the longest silence you ever heard in your life longer than anything i've ever heard and then i hear this sound editor she was obviously a a woman as you maybe can tell by my imitation there was a two-minute silence and then she said i think we've got everything we need thank you so much (laughs) 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 So, so somewhere now i have to tell you that that was my first favorite sound experience but recently i did an episode of a show called black monday where i was a former drug and sex addict who is lured into some kind of uh, capital deal with, even though I've been rehabilitated with drugs and sex. And so they needed a long sequence that I, I shot the scene humping these two porn actresses, but uh, did I say that? Anyway, they, they then needed a long section that went under everybody else's dialogue in other parts of the apartment where they needed to hear me humping And so they called me in and they said, we need about two minutes of you humping. Are you going to like freak out? And I said, two minutes of humping? I did five minutes of dry heaving. So they said, said, okay, uh, do you want us to just roll? I said, oh, yeah, just roll. So I went, ah, 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 for two minutes. And everybody is dying because I was so game. You know, I was like, they were like, really? You're not going to like get all tense? And I was like, no. So, I did it, and then we're all giggling. And the director said, "Do you think maybe it should be more shrill?" And I said, (laughs) "I said, well, I was going for like the effort of having not had any sex in a while." And he goes, "Yeah, but what about the shrillness for the ecstasy of it all?" And I said, "Okay, cool. Are you rolling?" (laughs) And we just and then they said, "Okay, we've got everything, so you can go now." And and I left, and there's like six technicians just staring at me like that guy is out of his mind but that guy can you know, fuck is what they were but thinking. that's <laughs> the thing is the thing of it is and it happened when i was doing uh, the chilling adventures of sabrina too i i would say to them where do you want me to fall when the uh, the tarantulas and the the monsters are eating me and they would say right there and so they, i'll let our let our stunt man show you and i'd say just put your foot just tap the rug that's where you want my head and then I would fall down and scream while imaginary tarantulas ate me, to, and then I would go out and have a cup of tea, and the guy running the the tea stand would say, whatever the fuck is going on in that house, I don't want to go anywhere in there. I said, no, that was me. Do you guys have equal? So you know, like I, my whole thing with everything is don't put your toe in, just jump right in the deep end, and if they want you to do it again, at least you know what the deep end feels like. Right. And and that's my thing. I it really cuts a lot of red tape. So uh, now now that I will tell you reminds me that when I was doing flag in the mm. s- closing chapters of uh, Eyes of the Dragon, as I recall, he's pretty out of his mind as he runs up the stairs. Oh yeah, it, it, this is the the
0: point in the story where he is close to his plan is close to falling apart, and he's trying to. Uh, frantically stop it and exert his power because he's almost got the power he wants yeah
2: and he's, he's saying some line over and over which i can't remember because it was 10 years ago like i'm gonna kill you or something i'm gonna cut your head off something yeah he's saying the same line over and over and over and over and over so my audio engineer on that was a fellow who's now a, one of my best friends and he's now the head of He's the head of audio production for Blackstone Publishing. But at that time, he was a very, very new audio engineer straight out of, I think, Emerson College near Boston and just looked like somebody's 12-year-old nephew. He he was white Boston Irish and a round head. He looked like a South Park character. And so I'm sitting in the booth doing whatever the line was. I'm going to kill you or I'm going to cut your head off or I'm going to take your head, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. At the height of insanity and tenacity and no, no, no sanity like in that booth. And then I come out for some cranberry juice and the look he gave me, I will cherish for the rest of my life. (laughs) Because when you're in a booth and you need to be crazy and bloodthirsty, there's a trick. You can't do it right right into the mic because it'll blow everything out but if you lower your voice it doesn't sound murderous so you've got to do this magical thing where you turn your head some magic number of degrees 12 certainly not 45 degrees you you turn your head and you keep experimenting with your engineer till you can do it full voice and it has full voice energy but it doesn't have um it doesn't blow out the uh it doesn't the blow out the, the sound waves yeah. and everything. I remember, and I also remember him saying to me on one break, well, where are you going to go with it now? Because uh, I'd gotten you know, to a 10. But the thing about Steven is he loves to get to a 10 and, and then stay at a 10 and then go to 12. He does. He likes that. That's his thing. I mean, early in any book, in any given book or any given thing, of course, he starts at zero to make sure that, that. uh you you get into the um the theme park ride and 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 pull down the you know the safety bar he's really good at that but once he goes he doesn't go one two three four five six seven eight nine ten. 10 he goes 1 10 10 10 10 10 10 12 and um and that's what he does and that's you know that's his thing that he can do it he but i remember my engineer saying Okay, where where are you going to go with this? We got like you know twenty twenty of these left. I said, I don't know, but I ain't backing down and building up again. That's the fun of it. That that's the the fun and the challenge. The other th- funny thing is that people in those days talk about true romance not opening big and then slowly becoming um, popular. The early reviews for that said things like Bronson Pinchot should never narrate another audiobook as long as he lives. Someone find him and vivisect his throat, take out his vocal cords. That was Jesus. appalling. And I thought, what? I did exactly what the book said. I did exactly what it said. Uh-huh. But um, I realized later, because they also did this to me with Tim Powers, and they did it to me to some extent with Robert Heinlein. Anybody that's a, that's a cult favorite, if... <laughs> They give you something of his, and it's not how they heard it in their head. They're going to hiss at you like a cat going to the vet. In the case of The the Eyes of the Dragon, there were two things going on. Number one, it may not have been like what they heard in their head. And number two, it, it was not what they were expecting from Stephen King. Because right. at that point, I don't know now, but at that point, it was the only kind of fantasy realm book he'd written. Is that still true?
0: It, it is definitely the most pure fantasy Book that that King has written. He he has a whole series called The Dark Tower, which actually ties into yeah it's the flag in that. But that yeah okay he, yeah. yep yep yeah. And uh, Delane, the kingdom of Delane, uh, yeah. we find out is is uh, an in world uh, kingdom within the world of the Dark Tower. And like Eyes of the Dragon, and it's funny you mentioned this too because when King published that book in the early eighties, he never apparently never got in, more hate mail in his life right. than he did. For publishing this thing because it is it's still stephen kingy so it's it it was what would be called young adult now but back then it was just here's a guy that did the shining and Cujo, and then he released this quote-unquote
2: kids book and like what the hell is he doing here didn't he do it on a dare from his daughter
0: yeah i think he the story is that he was like telling his daughter bedtime story and he was making it up and this it was essentially eyes of the dragon and then she was like you need to write this Um, I heard that she said,
2: I "I dare you to write it, or I don't think you can write a fairy tale. Um, Could be. But anyway, at the time, it's interesting, I don't read reviews of movies or plays, but I do read reviews of audiobooks because I've learned a lot from them. One thing is I I do a lot of battle stuff. And uh, early in my audio career, people would say, you know, just because it says whisper." Um, if the narrator whispers and you're on a car trip, you can't hear them over the motor. Mm-hmm. And just cause they're screaming doesn't mean you have to completely scream because then I got screaming in my ear for a 10 minute mm-hmm. battle scene. So I learned to modulate that to give it the energy of a whisper, but give it more uh, right. this and that. But anyway, so the original reviews were savage. Now, I get mail and I see reviews that are like, this is the, you know, this is the, the apogee of, uh, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, it was, it was the nadir before and it's the apogee. Now, I guess that's just the way (laughs) performing goes with certain material. It's really, sometimes it really is. the, The trick is to back into it, sidle into it and see what happens. But with stuff like true romance or the Langoliers or eyes of the dragon, The colors are primary colors. I mean, you've got terror and you've got evil and you've got sweetness and kind of, I mean, there's just, you either, you either commit and you paint like Van Gogh, you know, who didn't particularly use pastels and then people can screw themselves or whatever. But it's, it's actually good for the engine. I think it's good for your artistic engine to just Mm -hmm. commit and get in there and scream going up the spiral steps. (laughs) <laughs> screaming with the machete and then see how that kind of feels so that you don't fall into the trap of, uh, well, you know, for it to be really effective. I've got to go way down. No, 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 I mean, I can do that and I like to do it and I, I'm good at it, but it's really good, you know, for your engine. If you get on the freeway at the, in the dead of night and go as fast as you can and just see what you can do.
0: Right. Well, I, I can just tell you, as somebody who I didn't listen to a lot of audiobooks before the show, like uh, I weirdly in my mind, I kind of viewed it as cheating. Mm-hmm. And I think it was mostly because, in my personal experience, the way I process audiobooks, it's easier for me to zone out than it is if I'm reading mm-hmm. a physical copy. Um, So I, I very rarely read or listen to audiobooks before the show. And since I've read everything that King has done, Uh, with uh, I think one or two exceptions still to this, this day. Um, But I've wanted a lot of those were back when I was in middle school or high school. And so I've wanted to revisit a lot of these things that I'd already read um, for the show. So I could feel like I'm, you know, uh, I have a more uh, modern look, you know, more detail essentially. So because of the show, I've listened to, two dozen three dozen audiobooks yeah. now uh you know revisiting king stuff and i got to tell you like listening to your eyes of the dragon read you know it was like a breath of fresh air like it reminded me of um, Stephen steven weber did a uh, a reading of it um and at almost the
2: same time cuz he i would pass him i would pass <laughs> no shit, him really? i would be at the end of my shift and he would be coming in yes it's so funny yeah but both of you
0: guys perform and, and that's something that like you you take for granted when you're when you hear a good audio uh, narrator, an audiobook reader, um, but then when you hear one who just just reads and that's all they're they're doing and there's no personality to it yeah. and there's no hint of performance, you miss that. And you know to again, to your credit, you know the way you played flag in particular. You know, was something where, like, the first time I heard it, it's like, "Oh, this guy's really swinging for it." And then I, like, the more the more I listened to it, I was just like, "Like, fuck, man, I, I get nervous now when flag shows up."
2: You know? Yeah. It's I like mean, that's, the uh... thing of it is, if you're just gonna read it, because I teach audiobook narrating from time to time, mm-hmm. and the first thing I say to people is, uh, "Narrating is a word that should be reserved for the voice." On the old National Geographic educational films that said, and now the leopard comes in and begins to try to make love to the zebra, but the zebra doesn't like it. I mean, that's narrating. And also, (laughs) also narrating is when your mother pulls the curtain an inch and says, look at the new people across the street moving in. Oh, she's a big ass thing, isn't she? That's narrating. (laughs) That's not, that's not invested and it's not in it. I always say to the people taking my my little tutorial, I say first come up with another verb because narrating is outside the it's outside mm. the action. How about conveying, or how about um, reliving, or how about um, how about you just realize that the headphones are maybe an inch and a half from the from the cerebellum and you're in someone's head and mm. you are the book. That's my favorite is it, you are the book. You're not reading the book. You are the book. I right. mean, and the last person who had the book inside their head was the author. It shouldn't be any different the, he had it inside his or her head or their head. And now it's inside your head. So why should it sound like I'm reading it to you? Cause you can, I could read to you from across the room, but I could be it inside your head. And it works better for some books than others. My absolute favorite, and I didn't plan it, but there was a book about two competing teams getting to the South Pole for the first time. One of them was Norwegian. He's the guy that got there first. And one of them was British. And he not only uh, got there second, but on the way back to uh, his campsite, his uh, he got snowed in and froze to death. And they found him a couple of years later with the pen still in his hands still writing in his journal, frozen to death hmm. so the 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 fellow that put the book together was British, and for whatever reason, maybe even um you know kind of being tougher on the Brit because he was british the the book alternated between the Norwegian diary entries and the British diary entries and the the author, as he compiled this thing, was making his own commentary and he kept saying notice how the Norwegian guy was more uh, democratic. Notice how he was uh, less pushy. He was less this, he was less that. And notice how the British guy was doomed to failure because he was an elitist and he was this and that. But the diary entries are obviously in the first person. I can see nothing but snow. I'm cold. I'm hungry. So when you read the book, it's all in one voice you've got the um, compiler commenting in in a in a fairly snarky way about the British guy and then you've got the words that the Norwegian guy read and the words that the British guy read and I started to feel reading it that he was giving the British guy short shrift and um, at the end the very very last page of the book or last page or two pages was what they found under his frozen solid fingers that he was writing in his diary as he died. And it said, whoever gets this message, please, for the love of God, will you take care of my wife and children? They don't know what's happening to me. They'll never see me again. And what's going to happen to them? I don't know. But please, for the love of God, if you have an ounce of pity in you. Anyway, I choked up and started to sob as I read it, and I left it the person that did the qc and mastering, I sent him a message and I said, leave it. He died while, while writing that. Leave it. And he said, yeah, it is pretty cool. So the audiobook version of that book ends with a compassionate statement from me and from that explorer to the listener that it, it can't be in the book. It can't be in the written book because... It's just not an audiobook. And so that, I think, is kind of wonderful that way after the fact he got the last word, I didn't plan it, but I choked up and started to sob as I wrote it, which I I think whether he was crying or not, he was crying in his soul. And so that's a a nice example of what happens when you take a written book, make it into an audiobook. It adds another dimension that could not have been planned. You know, to loop back around to something you were saying a moment ago about,
1: you know, the terminology we use to discuss people uh, reading audiobooks and narration being, you know, you having sort of an issue with the the term narration. It's funny you say that because when I was writing your intro for this episode, I got to the line about you narrating the audiobook version of Eyes of the Dragon. And any time I've ever had to do this with anybody, narrated does feel like the wrong word to me. I know what you mean. Yeah. It feels it feel like performs would yeah. would seems to be the correct word, but no one ever fucking uses that terminology. So I always feel self it's always my impulse to say so-and-so performs the audiobook, but because no one says that, I feel like <laughs> you feel I'm gonna sound like it? a crazy person <laughs> no, you know, it saying is, it.
2: There's a lot in there, there's a lot of subtlety in there. First of all, you can scare off the consumer by saying performs because some people, unless they've heard it done and done well. They don't know that they want someone performing in their ear. I say the same thing when I coach actors. I say, um, so let's see the scene. And they start and I say, stop. I don't want to see acting. Acting is bullshit. My little brother called me today from a hospital, as, as I told you earlier. And he, he told me he had a problem. He wanted me to pick him up and he sounded really awful. After I waited and waited and waited for an hour and a half... Um, he texted me and said, I just did that for the nurse. She didn't want me to drive home by myself. I'm fine. So now you can go you can go to your podcast. But he was he was acting for her benefit to get his way because she wanted to make him promise that he was gonna get he was having an epidural. She wanted to make him promise he was gonna have so he put me on the speakerphone and without my knowledge, he convinced her to leave him be and let him go to his car. But usually acting I don't like that word either, because in life, if you have dinner with someone and it's a first date and she's like, oh, you're the most amazing, fantastic person I have ever met. You go to yourself. "Ah, oh, She's acting. So I don't, I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not fond of that word either, because to me, it almost it, the full phrase would be acting as if. Right. So right. I like to say um why don't you just live it let's let's leave acting to uh, somebody else but i don't care for acting and if you let me catch you acting i'm going to stop you i can see acting you know i can see acting when my cuz i'm very careful about what i eat i was a vegan for a long time so i can see acting when my mom makes eggplant parmesan and she wants me to eat it even though i don't eat dairy she will do some pretty damn good acting but it's still acting um <laughs> you know what i mean uh, so right. that i think a lot of the words they're just placeholders they're okay as placeholders actually the nicest verb is one that comes by accident when you've done a really good job with a book you will see in a in a user review this is the most emotional experience i have ever had reading a book and i want to say well you didn't read it i read it inside your brain you think you read it but but you didn't but you experienced it so they're all fine they're they're just placeholder I remember telling a really funny story to some friends in an antique shop once. And it was about, I don't know, it was about something silly that happened. And we were all just laughing the kind of the way you laugh when you've been laughing for a long time, like kind of doubling over and catching ourselves on tables. And there was a customer in the shop who was listening and enjoying it. And but she wasn't part of the group. And then finally, she came around front and saw my face and she she stopped smiling and she said, oh, oh, well, you're an actor. No wonder it's a good story. I said no, hmm. no. It's a good story because it's a good story. I'm an I am an actor by by trade, but uh, but that's that, no. This uh, forget it. Why don't you right. why don't you eat me? Um, but it's like <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not the reason. It's a good story. It's a good story because it's a good story. And so acting's okay. It's acting, narrating, but narrating is a dreadful word because it really is like you know, like when you're watching a movie with someone and you're really into it and they say, "Oh man, look at this. Oh, look at this. There's a piece of lint on her shoulder and it wasn't in the close-up. Isn't that awesome?" And then you want to say, "Stop narrating. I'm watching. I'm in I'm in the movie <laughs> right. and you're telling me about her like, you know, the the jelly donut on her lip. Just shut up. Narrating is an intrusion. But it's I okay. also I also don't think it's
1: um I don't think saying that someone narrates an audiobook is grammatically correct or literally correct you're right you're right it's you know narration takes place over a thing exactly exactly right yeah so it does seem weird listen it's just we're gonna kick start we're gonna kick start the it's like um, escort the movement to get people to start
2: phrasing this the right way No, but if you ever hire a hooker they call them escorts they're not escorting you anywhere <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the accepted it's the accepted um it's the accepted euphemism. It's
1: fine. Sure. Was was Eyes of the Dragon the first King novel you read, or what? You know,
2: what is your Stephen King origin story? Like, how well, the did he? First, the first Stephen King thing I read, and and if you had if you had buried your head in your hands and meditated, you would realize obviously the first thing I had to have read was The Langoliers, right?
1: Um, well, now that you
2: had. To. Okay, you stop it right now. Okay, uh, <laughs> I uh, the first thing I I think I read of his was the Langoliers. You see, the funny thing is that once you grow up in this country or in this uh, in the last at the end of the last century or the beginning of this one, it's hard to tell what you've read and what you've seen because it's all yeah. in there. The first time I intentionally sat down and opened a book and said I I better I, I better take every word of this on board was the Langoliers. Right. and then there was Eyes of the Dragon, and I can't tell you what was in between or after it for the simple reason that I have done over 400 audiobooks, and I can't tell anymore what I'm reading and what is the job and what I'm, I can't. <laughs> right. And every time somebody says to me, oh, I left a book in your mailbox. You must read it. Tell me when you've read it. I say, oh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I read all day long until my brain is fried and my voice is fried and I'm not reading anything else, but thank you. I just not gonna, I just, no. Right. I can't, I can't, I cannot tell you because uh, it's like saying to a porn star, what was the best sex you ever had? Well, uh, let's see now, was that an outtake or was that at my house? <laughs> where, where, <laughs>
0: like
2: what? <laughs> I don't know.
0: What about the, the movies? Were you, are you familiar with, with a lot of the, the more classic, you know, King stuff. and well, am yeah. thinking like the Shawshanks and the carries yeah. and shinings and whatnot. Yeah.
2: That's another thing that I have to say. And I, I think, I think Steven would agree with this is the thing that that, that separates the wheat from the chaff mm. clearly is when a perf, a, a, a performer takes the material right down to the marrow mm instead of saying I'm in a genre that that's the difference you watch Christopher Walken in the dead zone or you watch uh, Jack Nicholson in the shining or or any like if they take it right down to the marrow and they don't say I'm in a genre they just in the moment then -hmm. it's going to stand head and shoulders above the rest as soon as somebody's like you know I'm in a Stephen King film you're dead Mm -hmm. I think he'd say the same thing
0: yeah I mean stand by me is a great example of that where that they're just characters they're not stephen king characters uh he would argue with you on jack torrance he n- notoriously hates what nicholson did with that character he did but uh, oh yeah oh yeah Notori- okay because he he viewed torrance uh, <clears throat> one Tor- jack torrance is a lot about like what stephen king could have been if his alcoholism uh it was like the worry of what he could be if his alcoholism grabbed him right so there's you know there's always there's little uh bit of Stephen King in that character a little bit more than typical I mean obviously there's a little bit of uh, you know the author in every character that they make but more one so in particular. Than he
1: may be willing to admit
2: of course
0: probably yeah and you know dealing with his fears of hurting his family and you know all that that stuff I mean that's I think that's a legit thing for him so when he saw the movie he his big criticism well there was a couple of them one he thought that Kubrick's movie was too cold and that the and that his his story is really you know, it gets scary and, you know, it, but it's more tragic. And that's tied into his other big criticism was with Jack Torrance himself, where he didn't go from the lovable, nice guy that, you know, that's just the family man and the dad trying his best to the monster. You know, he's like, when you cast Nicholson, you just have the monster, you know. Yeah, well, and he's,
2: but so- he's also he is responsible for making that experience and Kubrick too in right. indelible in the collective unconscious right. it reminds me of what ray bulger who played the scarecrow and the wizard of oz somebody asked him in an interview once do you get residuals and he said no only immortality uh, and right. it's like you know there are <laughs> worst there are worst fates there are worse fa- i mean okay so i i you know i get you on that but um
0: oh i don't agree with stephen king on this by the way just it's, just it's for the fine, record but yeah. it's,
2: it's it's awesome to sort of you know, to feel that, and then you have to say, "Well, I mean, it's it's in the it's in the collective unconscious. It's deep. I don't know. It's it's tricky because in the best filmic storytelling, it's a tricky, tricky, tricky thing. But at a certain point, you have to bring your chi to the author's chi, and then you get a thing that maybe neither of you. And then the editor brings their chi, right. and, and then you might end up with a thing that was not what any of you saw, but around." Over time, you can come around to it. I mean, I saw uh, a funny thing with Patty Duke, Aston once, and she was talking about. There's a huge cult for uh, the Valley of the Dolls, mm-hmm. and she said, "You know, when I first did it, I was appalled, and now I sort of come around. It's like, okay, let me see it through. Let me see it through your eyes. At the time, as a train wreck, mm-hmm. and that can happen. That's a you know, it takes decades sometimes to see something as others saw it." And see, OK, so maybe I had one version and then there was another version on this, uh, the paper that, uh, that went to the actors' homes. There's another one on celluloid. Now there's another one in the collective unconscious. So what do I think of that? You don't even know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you, you don't because it's it, right. it has a life of its own. And any author and Stephen himself and, and I had this conversation. The characters have opinions of their own. And you can sit there all night and coax them where you want them to go, and they will go where they goddamn will please. I mean, I've um, experienced it as an actor. I've experienced it as a writer, and it's it's eerie. They'll go oh, where yeah. they want. They'll go where they For want. Sure. As soon as you give them uh, life and gasoline, they will tell you off, and you, uh, you cannot— You cannot coax them. You cannot force them. It's fantastic. Is there a role that you played that you came into
1: thinking, uh, it's going to be this. And then the reality of it was drastically different. Like what's the biggest Um, change in your expectation versus the reality?
2: You know, I played a, I did a play once that had eight, uh, had two, two actors that played a total of 16 people. Uh, it's called stones in his pockets. You never leave the stage. You never change costumes, but you play men and women, children and old people. You just, you just do that story theater thing. And I don't know what I expected going in, but there was a character in it who was a jokester. And toward the end of the play, the other character says to him, well, what is with you? Why does everything have to be a joke? And then um, he says, well, because I, I tried to uh, kill myself. And to my horror, they revived me at the hospital. And then mm. I looked around and thought, I, I couldn't even do that right. So I'm on tour with this play. I don't remember the city. I'm on tour with this play. And I started to say that just as calmly as can be. And all of a sudden I was doubled over doing the kind of sobbing that each of us maybe does maybe once in his life sobbing. I could see my tears hitting the stage. And I was like, I'm 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 along for the ride. I just this is just happening. And when I finally could stand upright, the, the look on the other actor's face was like he had seen a ghost. And it happened about once every four performances, and I don't know where it came from. I certainly I That's fucking wild, dude. And the director hmm. told me we don't necessarily want that, Bronson. The character is an Irishman and we don't <laughs> we don't show emotion like that. <laughs> the and Irish I said, don't cry, Bronson. <laughs> and I said I said, Well then you might want to get a different actor because I don't wa- I don't plan it. I don't think it. It's just what happens and about once every four performances it would happen and i would just stagger under the 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 power of it that the, the force of it and i would stand up and look at the other actor and he was it was absolutely he was absolutely traumatized which was absolutely perfect for the play because i had been freaking funny for the whole play in a variety of characters and then there's this thing and then then the character who's done the revelation says, "Anyway, uh, enough of that." And goes, "And that's, that's what happened." And I didn't. No one ever told me to do that. I never planned to do it. It didn't say to do it. That's just what happened. And that happens quite a lot in, in acting. It's it's what is so eerie about. Uh, unless you've been right there and seen it, it's hard to believe. The, the reason that so many people come off of movies and they become lovers is. You're just doing your thing and you're hitting your marks and you're saying your lines and all of a sudden something sits up inside you that you, you really didn't know was there and says, I want you or I hate you. Hmm. And, and you don't, it's like, I just had a beer with this guy. I, I don't hate him. But inside, there's a thing that does. And then you, you it, then the next night, it happens again. And oh, it's, it's really, really weird. But it's hmm. it happens a lot. As a matter of fact, you were talking about me and Marklin Baker. I, w- I will tell you now, in the context of this, that for the first two years that we did the show, we bickered like little brats. Because we were both you know famous in our own right. So there we were having to share the spotlight. And we bickered, 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 bickered. But as soon as I went into character, I loved his ass off. And then, you know, it would be time to go home, and I'd give him a look like, well, you're kind of bossy tonight. You kind of bossed me around. And, but one day we looked at each other and both realized, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. So we're playing like that, we love each other more than diamonds. And then we're like having these petty arguments. That's stupid. I mean, and so it's the, <laughs> if you want to say it, no and and w- i love telling that story because literally the characters told us this is what's going on idiot and if you want to like bicker with this other human being you're you're wrong because I, I, I we love each other and so you want to get on you want to get on board or you want to be like all messed up and and that's that's what happened i used to love to be outrageous when i was making appearances with mark Lynn. i used to love to be outrageous cuz it mortified him and he would squeeze my hand, like, please don't do that. It's so mortifying. <laughs> and I would get a kick out of it. Okay, so that's Wait, wait, much- wait, wait. What were you doing that uh, Mark found uh, or I would mortifying? A, well, we would be doing, like, let's say we'd be doing a, uh, an interview for Perfect Strangers. And I'd make a completely lewd sexual reference, which, <laughs> which made everybody shocked. Because I was supposed to be, you know, this character. And, of course, I did it because I was a character. So he would turn white. And dig his fingernails (laughs) into my arm, like, please don't do that. (laughs) Nowadays, but what happens nowadays, all these years later, is if somebody asks a question that could have a lewd answer, Mark turns pink and starts howling with laughter because he knows what I'm thinking. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then i look at him like okay so you already know what i wish i could say now i don't have to say it and then we just put our heads together and we just hug and scream with laughter and people look at us like okay they need to be institutionalized but it's the <laughs> same instinct sublimated by basically by years of friendship and also by our our characters saying okay you don't really want to embarrass him you just want to be a brat so why can't you um have both so like he knows that I've had this bratty instinct, and he enjoys it, and I enjoy it, and nobody gets embarrassed. It's the weirdest thing, but you know, there. Uh, that's that's what happened. It, we're the same people, only we used to get huffy, and now we just think, oh, that's funny. You mentioned earlier that you you'd spent time
1: talking to King, presumably on the um, yeah, on the you set. know, Langolier set. What was your conception of the guy before you met him versus the reality or were they exactly the same
2: i can't remember what my perception of him was but it all changed in a in a heartbeat which all perceptions can do which i love about us as human beings perception mershmachman it it, it it can all change in half a second i don't sure. know what i was expecting you know uh, this lauded author who was uh, a legend and everything so um i'm sitting in the makeup chair on day one and we had to figure out what I would look like on the last day. We had to figure out, it's it's difficult. It was day one, we hadn't shot anything. We had to figure out what would he look like? What would the character look like after? that. we went to the script page by page. So he gets a toaster oven in the face. He gets kicked. He gets punched. He gets this. So we had to figure it all out. And then I said, well, hold on. Well, when that happened, I was on the floor. So it can't run down my face. It has to run toward my ear. So we're doing all this complicated stuff. And there's this booming voice in the hallway. and. Uh, you know, I was one of the stars of the thing. I'm under pressure. I have to shoot up to this. So I said, hey, could we just have a little respect here? And, <laughs> and Stephen rolled around the doorway and he said, I'm so, so sorry. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just looked at each other and burst out laughing. He OK, so I'll say the two things that's, that that are right in his marrow are the wicked wicked humor because the first look i ever saw on his face was wicked delight i had yelled at him oh not yeah knowing, not knowing he was stephen king and he <laughs> had relished to the to the depth of his being the the look that was going to be on my face when he rolled in the room and he did he rolled around the door jam he literally rolled around the door jam and he just was relishing the delight of that and that and I think there was a look on my face for a split second, like, Oh no, I didn't mean you. And he cut me off and was like, but you did mean me. And so we just (laughs) just were falling on the floor laughing. Um, So I think the wicked bratty, wonderful elfin humor, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously the humility, because you would never never know that he had accomplished what he's accomplished. He's just delightfully humble. Just the, 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 the uber brat of all time. I went, we, we were way out on, on the uh, tarmac and there, it was always a hundred degrees. So this um, golf cart would come out at top speed with some PA who had just gotten a call from the network and the network, and she'd have a scrap of paper and she'd say, we, uh, the network is, uh, have you shot it yet? And he would say, no. Well, the network th- thinks this line is too strong um, where Bronson says, you son of a bitch. That's just, I'm just giving an example. They think sure. the language is, is too strong. Can you please write something else? And he said, just right on the spot, right here. And she would say, yes, that's what they want. And he'd say, oh, okay. And then he'd grab the piece of paper and carefully write something. And then he handed it to me and said, let's just see how that sounds. Instead of you son of a bitch, uh, just see how this sounds. And what he had written on the page was, you asshole eating crap faced son of a cunt. And it was just like <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he would just look at her like, is that better? I mean, then he would write a line, but he's <laughs> <laughs> but he would it was just heavenly what a brat he was. And 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 mind you, we're all standing in a hundred degree heat with a hundred degree humidity. And he he literally takes a minute and a half to pretend he's composing this line, and then write it all out, and then have me read it. So yeah, you know, he's just he's just delightful. A lot How about helpful
1: his, was he in terms of you crafting the character, or was um, he pretty hands off?
2: He, my memory of him is that I would look to him for his gut. And he never showed me anything but go on, keep doing what you're doing, ever. We talked more about his writing process and what it was like to take flight and and sit in, at that time he used to like to sit in, um, or he had written the end of The Langoliers in a kind of a screened-in porch uh, in his main house. And he said, you know, I, I started to write it and then it just took I think he's, you know, he was up all night and he said, it just wrote me. It just, it just took off. It was a high. I mean, it just, it just wrote itself <laughs> and it took me with it, but he's the kind of person that could have communicated with a, a look. Uh, uh, uh no, that's not the right direction. I mean, I, I honestly, because I, I, because I was, I was painting in those Stephen King colors. I I would have been surprised if he had said, pull it back for the love of God. I mean, it was, it was, right. it was, what, he, it was what he had written. <laughs> right. The other thing that he was delighted by, absolutely delighted by, because it was very Stephen King was that I had just come off perfect strangers. And here I was this innocent, adorable, optimistic, loving person playing this complete monster. He just, that tickled him. That just mm. made him, that just made him giggle. So the, the more evil and the more demented I was, he, he didn't get in the way of the process, but whenever we would talk, especially if I came right off a scene and I would see him standing there, you can't miss him and go up and just chat with him. He would just, his lips would curl with this, the, the, the complete, what's the word I want? It was just, it was just so, uh, Oh God, it's on the tip of my tongue. It was just, it's was just a wicked thing to do, you know, to put Balky comb his hair back and make him into a, a, a <laughs> um, you know, he just loved that. I mean, it's just a lovely. child murdering yeah. psychopath i mean yeah. it just with it just, with daddy issues yeah it just it just delighted him as it did me and it just delighted him on a deep level he just looked like he was always gonna chuckle cuz it just satisfied him right and uh he was just a, a fantastic i mean self-effacing humble helpful funny and unlike god I think any author I've ever seen on a set, he was a. He made it clear with his body language that he was a bystander. He wasn't there to um, intimidate anybody. He was there to help, and he was there to have a little fun. I mean, it was just the best. That's important, and that you only can communicate with, literally, with your nerve endings and your your body. You can communicate as an author. Hey. You do your thing, and I'm, I'm watching this unfold, and, and you know, let, let me see what you do with it. And he just communicated it all without – he never said that, but that's what he was like. Right. Delightful, man. Delightful.
0: Well, before we wrap up here, and we'll, we'll let you go here very shortly. Because oh, I have there... to pee really badly. Oh,
2: yeah. Like, I'm crossing okay, my so legs we'll right quick. now,
0: but it's not going to last for long. All right, we'll make it quick. I, I want—I I was hoping you might recount the story that you told in during the Q and A. It's one of my favorite moments during the uh, Timekeepers thing, where you mentioned a story about seeing a sign on your drive
2: to the— Yo, Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, and I—I w- I would love it for our listeners to, to hear. Okay, this well, story. this is uh, like. Here's what I always say: I I love stories that you don't have to add or subtract one word to for them to be. Wonderful. And this is a story like that. I don't have to embellish and I don't have to edit. I Mm -hmm. decided that I wanted to live in a cabin deep in the woods. I didn't want to live at that. There was a hotel right right at the airport where we were shooting, but I wanted a cabin way in the woods. It was really deep in the woods. So it was Mm -hmm. like 25 minutes of turn left at this tree and turn right at this tree. It was really complicated. You had to reset your odometer five times. At 1.2 miles, you look for the tree and you got. So I'm deep in the woods, 25 minutes to the main road. Then there was a main road, which was a straight shot to the airport. So on the way in, I'm thinking, oh, my God, today I have to do this and I have to uh, stab a uh, little, little girl. And on the way back, I'm thinking, now tomorrow I have to do this and I have to stab so-and-so. So I was like uh, just so deep in my thoughts. So I do this for weeks And I start to notice that there's this lone house, what what we would call in California, a ranch-style house, a little one-story house with huge sheets of of plywood out in front and graffiti, as I thought. And I remember just thinking, as I'm thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to make it different? How am I going to make it interesting? I thought wow how did graffiti taggers get this far out in is this like in the middle of nowhere this little lone house with this huge plywood and this graffiti so one day maybe there was traffic i don't know what made me look but it said in the plywood was very tall and the letters were four feet tall and it said in huge letters it was uh, it said balky is that you with a huge <laughs> question mark so by this time i think to myself Um, So they've been watching me go back and forth at this point twice a day for, let's say, three, four weeks. And that sign's been up the whole time because I did notice out of the corner of my eye and the corner of my consciousness that that there was a pity that there was was graffiti this far out. So one day I was on my way into work. So I pull in to the driveway of the house and I pull around the plywood and I pull up to the... um, the windows of what was obviously their dining room and the whole family's having breakfast. And I pulled as close as I could. And I just looked at them and the father looked at me like, who the hell are you on my property? And then it dawned on him that they had actually, you know, put the worm on the, uh, on the fishing yeah. line and, and they caught summoned balky the They summoned him. And <laughs> so he looked at me and I looked at him and he looked at the kids and the wife and the wife and the kids looked at him and we all started to laugh. They never made a move to get up and come out we just were laughing too hard it was so delightful we laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and then they they just gave me the thumbs up and i gave them the thumbs up and i i drove away it was so so fucking crazy it was so pure to talk to you it was so pure but the thing was that it was too good i think whoever those people were they knew it isn't going to get any better than this we put the (laughs) sign we put the sign and he showed up at breakfast (laughs) <laughs> and the whole thing i i wouldn't have had it any other way it was so much fun <laughs> and also because they were sitting you know there's a foundation to the house and then they're sitting on the floor i'm sitting in my jeep or whatever it was we were at eye level probably three feet apart with just the windows in between <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and also the, the the fact that it took them a second to process Okay, who is this? What's he doing here? Wait, it couldn't be. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and I didn't even smile. I was like, "Figure it out." And it was just—it was marvelous. It was so much fun. It's just the best. Oh, that's, yeah. it's
1: great. I—I I
2: have Wonderful. one
0: more question before we wrap.
2: Okay, um, and I—I actually just had to just pee myself, so it's cool. Okay, cool. Okay, good. Just pee myself. Um, You're
0: okay. welcome. It's the KingCast uh, influence. I'm sorry. No, yes, yeah. cool. we
1: have had people pee on the air before. You know, it's not. Outside of realm of possibility. <laughs> He's not
0: lying. He's not lying. Yeah. That actually has happened.
1: <laughs> um, In the world of audiobooks and specifically Stephen King audiobooks, anytime I've ever gotten a com- into a conversation about somebody about the best ones, your eyes of the dragon always comes up like that. That's Stop just it. one. Of, yeah. One of the top tier performances. I'm begging a, you to stop it, but I'm lying. Of a, a Stephen I love King novel. It.
0: Okay. <laughs> but
1: I'm wondering if you've ever heard from him directly about that one, because it seems, it no. seems to be such a standout.
2: I have And you'd, you'd think he would have written a single line. Wouldn't you? <laughs>
0: you'd think <laughs> that, that he bastard. would have written
2: a single line. Wouldn't you? And here's the other thing. I have a niece who worships him. She's eight or something. And, um, her her dad, who's my cousin, so she's my second cousin, whatever, has, called me up and said, right. "Is there any way that if she wrote him a fan letter, you could get it to him?" So I called my audiobook publisher and I said, "Hey, if my if my second cousin uh, writes a letter to Stephen, can you get it to him?" And they said, "No." <laughs> so, so I don't even care if he sends me a line. I just want him to send my little second cousin a line because she worships him. <laughs> He is uh he is tough to get a hold of. That you know what true. it doesn't bother me because if he's ever heard it and it gave him a moment of pleasure that would that would tickle me no end. I think if he didn't like it, I think he would have found a terribly witty way to send me a line that said, You suck, but um how you doing? <laughs> I, I I somehow I, I think he would have done that. An so an the email, fact you haven't like, heard I'm gonna
1: imprison me. you at the top of the needle, motherfucker. I
2: mean, you know <laughs> what I mean? There's, he's, just, he's one of those people and Stephen Sondheim is like that. That you don't, you you feel like you after you've worked with them, you know, they're not going to send out a shaft of emails every day. But you feel like if you if you please them, uh, they, it's going to reach them. And if you miss misstepped, you might hear about it in a funny way, but not a mean way. And that's just the way it is. But I have well, a lot of love. I have a lot of love for him because he he you got to you really have to see him and work with him to get the full measure of. He knows exactly how to be. He just knows how to be. First of all, he's not scary. And secondly, he's not intimidating. And thirdly, he doesn't lord it over anyone. I think he has realized, maybe even in a distant way, the way I realized with those people at breakfast, you don't need to do anything. If they've done all the work and they're like, Bucky, is that you? And you show up, it's like, well, I just, I'm just me. So I don't need to do anything. I don't need to do Hmm. the dance of joy. I don't need to join you at breakfast. I just need to sit here. And then we, you did it. So he's the master at, I know what everybody might be thinking. Stephen King is, so I'll just be not that. And I'll just be a wickedly gleaming presence. And then that'll be fun. That's him. You know what I mean? We both met him and found him very, very down to earth okay yeah. when i
1: when i saw him he walked. He, it was like an event where there were there were maybe 10 of us in a room and they marched him into a room to greet us and do like a like a 20 30 minute q a or something right and yeah. he just walked in the door with his thumbs hooked into his jeans and was just like sat down and was like so what do you want to hear what do you want exactly. to know ask me anything you know he's yeah you know, <laughs> a very down to earth like yeah he's
2: he, chill dude yeah he gets it and, yeah. well, he should, because like most really good writers, he knows I do the writing. Well, it's actors, too. I, I People used to say to me, do you remember that movie? Was, was it Eight and a Half Weeks or Nine and a Half Weeks? There was a lot of sex in it with Kim nine Basinger. And nine and a Half Weeks. Okay. And so when people say to me sometimes, would you do the dance of joy? I say, I'll do it if when you run into Kim Basinger, you make her do the sex scenes from Nine and a Half Weeks. <laughs> it's like, so... So the thing is, like, you do your thing, and he does his on paper or on the computer, and I do mine on screen. And then the rest of the time, you don't need to do it. You did it.
0: Yeah, you know, that's, right. your,
2: that's when you're, you're working and you're channeling your stuff. into And then the rest of the time, you could just stick your thumbs in your jeans or, as I do, into my G-string. And you can – no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, that's the work, and this, is the, and this is not the work. That's it. I mean, a lot of really funny people are not funny in person. They just don't feel the need right, right. It, the difference just, between being on and not yeah you know yeah. For... my favorite funny people are just and, and meanwhile a lot of people who are not particularly funny on screen are scream off screen carrie yeah. fisher carrie fisher was a non-stop hilarity <laughs> <laughs> uh, and to be you know she was just too funny she was wet yourself funny a lot of people are like that they're just so much fun yeah and it's the opposite. Yes, yeah, so it is a big opposites thing. I'm a big famous yeah. I'm a big famous best selling author, so um so I'm just gonna be cool.
1: I think it's remarkable that he's achieved the the iconic status that he has. All the all the yeah. money in the world, all that shit, and he's just a dude. He's le- yeah. like legitimately just a dude. That's the most admirable thing to me. Of
2: course it you is. Know? Mm. I loved when he channeled like an eleven year old fanboy um before the final harry potter came out and it was like you better not kill harry that's just not gonna be okay
0: <laughs>
2: right. i mean remember that yeah and it was really cute it was like and i knew reading it i was like first of all he knows that's silly second of all it's exactly what he really thinks and third of all she he knows she's probably already you know it's already on paper but he's just saying i just uh, that's not i that would not be a good thing <laughs> Right. yeah he also said she never met an adverb she didn't like, which is hilarious <laughs> <laughs> she has that's met a few pronouns she doesn't like but isn't that, oh else. i know i know I, that that I, I, <laughs> but suit I mean, this so he he's good at that I now i that's no, great i am actually there's a my engineer has this plastic thing that he sits his chair on, and i'm I'm wetting hmm. it. Um, you're in a- okay yes we,
0: we we can wrap this up Yeah, all right for sure
2: well uh bronson this is usually the
1: the point in the show where we uh, allow our guests to you know sort of tease whatever they're working on next or maybe where they can next be seen or where they can be found or maybe just plug something you're a fan of what's going on with you the the floor is yours
2: uh well i've got a movie called clowning uh and i'd like to tell you why it's so it's not funny at all I'd like to tell you why it's so uh, remarkable, but uh, my entire... Well, I've got two movies, actually. But in both of them, I'm doing things that make the Langoliers look kind of tame in terms of <laughs> what what you would expect me to do and what I'm doing. So Go I, I, on. I, well, the no. aforementioned G-string action. Oh uh, No, 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 no. It's just, you know, I was trained as a method actor doing serious stuff, and I was shocked when people hired me to do funny light stuff i thought it was cheating and i didn't i didn't know why they gave me money for that but i am now doing the kind of performances that i was trained to do and that i thought i should do and that i wanted to do and that actually represent my take on life so uh there's two movies and both of them are dramatic and um the the second movie we shot it and it had a, a title like um. Forward slash or something. I mean, it was like just a forward slash, not the words forward slash. <laughs> but um, I've got to pee. So just, you know, Do keep it. your ears peeled. I've got a, a crap ton of audiobooks coming out. And um, the hills are alive with the sound of your in. I've got to get into the other room. But I've got. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All okay. good. Dude. Well, thank you, Dude. thank you so much for being here today. This was a delight, uh, a real honor to talk to you. Thank you so much for for coming out for that screening we had uh back in September. Oh no, it was
2: really really fun. I'm glad to meet you. You guys are real easy to talk to, and that's why I wanted to do it because um, you were so fun and easy.
0: Many thanks to Bronson Pincho. We finally got the pinch, and he was everything that I wanted and more. What about you, the Scott? What do you think?
1: Pinch. This was like a lifelong dream come true. I don't know why Balky was such a fixture of my childhood, but to uh, to get to to chat with this man for an hour or however long it was, was a it was a real delight. And he was just like the nicest, nicest fucking guy you could ever ever deal with. Also a straight talker. Love a straight talker.
0: And had some good Stephen King stories, which kind of helps considering we are a Stephen King podcast. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah.
1: I don't know if you want me to reveal this on the air, but he even sent us a lovely note. After we recorded this episode, just to say that you guys are really good at what you do, and how fucking rad is that? No one else has done that. Ryan Johnson certainly didn't do that when he was on the show. Eric or Elijah Brian. Wood, mm. neither of those guys did that. Yeah, so, uh, I'm starting
0: to feel left out by the majority of our guests now. Like we, right. we're not getting the props that we deserve. But it it took Balky to do it, and Balky absolutely did it. And now yes. I feel so good about myself. As a result, I think we should keep
1: doing the show. We were going to cancel it after this, this episode. But um, because of that very moving note from Balky uh, we will be continuing to do the King Cass forthwith.
0: Absolutely. And we got two really interesting episodes to tell you about. Uh, what you want to start with, Scott? you want to talk about the Patreon on Friday or you want to talk about next week's episode first?
1: Mm. Which one am I doing? <laughs> You're doing the Patreon. Okay, I'll I'll start it off. Um, uh, this Friday on the Patreon, we are doing the last Kingcast mailbag episode of the year. Uh this is something we do for our patrons uh every few months where we just let people send in questions and we answer them on the air. Uh, sounds very simple but uh you guys are not shy about sending in questions i think the last time we did one of these it was like fucking two hours long or something
0: yeah hopefully it won't be (laughs) as long this time i know you guys like it but for our sanity hopefully uh uh, this one is a little bit more manageable
1: (laughs) we well we had a, a large influx of patreon subscribers over the last uh week or so since mike came on and did uh that Dr. Sleep commentary with us, mm-hmm. so I imagine we're going ge- to be getting a lot of questions from the new folks as well. They should, uh, I'm sure they have plenty of questions they've been bottling up inside and just can't wait to have answered by us. But yeah, that's uh, that's what we're doing uh, this week. Just me and Eric going toe to toe with y'all. Uh, if you have not already signed up for the Patreon, you can go over to patreon.com/backslash/ the kingcast and get signed up at whichever tier. Meets your financial needs and KingCast wants.
0: And next week we are. I, I'm, I'm, ooh, next week's a, it's a big one. It's, it's a, a big one. I'm trying one. to spice. I'm trying to figure out how, how best to tease it without giving it away. So topic is my personal favorite Stephen King book, and that is it. So we are once again churning <laughs> into the sewers after that damn clown, and we are joined by a wonderful guest. Very great talker, very knowledgeable guy, Academy Award winner. We can say that much. Mm-hmm. Never appeared on the show before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to want to listen to this episode. Let's just put it that way.
1: Also, for anyone who's been cl- complaining about the length of episodes lately, this one's going to be a little on the tighter side because we mm. only had so much time to work with with this guest because he is a, a, an exceptionally busy person. But Indeed. Uh, we got some. We got some gold at him. You know, as we as we tend to do, and uh, we think y'all are going to be really excited when we announce who this is.
0: Oh yeah, it'll it'll be one of those where it's like, oh, I can't believe you got that guy, and I'm like, yeah, of course, of course, we did. Baby Bronson Pinchot said we were good at what we do, <laughs> and it well, only that- took us eight
1: months. to get this man on the show yes
0: yes so uh definitely come back next wednesday that'll be in our main feed we will be talking it with this mystery academy award-winning filmmaker and i can't wait for you guys to hear it so that is next wednesday this friday is our mailbag up where we'll be answering all your questions about stephen king randomness about the show and the production of the show and all that fun stuff so we you got some good stuff to listen to uh, while you're digesting your turkey for all uh, our American friends. Oh, that's true. It's Thanksgiving. Happy mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you all next week. Adios. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott wompler Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly.